I want to just talk to you about um, a little personal story here. I have a truck, which I've loved for a long time. Anybody have a truck like that? Yeah. Well, let's, let's even take a step back. How many people are Ford people here? I mean, we kind of live in the land of Ford in one way. We've got some factories. How about, how about um, Dodge, Mopar? Mopar? Oh, wow, those hands shot up fast. You know what I've always noticed about Mopar people? They are dedicated. They're not a lot of them, but they're dedicated, boy. How about Chevy people? Okay, mine's Chevy, and I, I'm, I have nothing against the other models, really, but I've just had this truck for a long time, maybe 12 years or so, and it's been a good truck. It's run, I've, had about, I've got about 315,000 miles on it, but the sad part about it is probably won't be a lot more miles. I've had a check engine light on for a while, and I took it to the shop not too long, well, a couple of years ago, and the mechanic said, um, <laughs> see, okay, you see where I'm going with this? Tested the pressure, and he said, well, you've got a couple cylinders that aren't firing quite at full pressure. That's all. So just ignore it. But do you have a check engine light on? Seriously. <laughs> a couple of you do. Okay. Well, it's funny. I was reading some statistics about that, and they were saying that this is kind of scary, actually. They say that at any one time in any area of the country, there's no place that's any better or worse than this. They say that 10% of the cars driving around have a check engine light on. Hey, man, why would you hey man? It's true, though. Check engine light. Here's the thing. When they test that and see what it is, I mean, those of you who know cars and are, you know, have some mechanical ability or maybe like you, like me, have gone to the mechanic and they said, this check engine light you don't have to worry that much about. But some of those, they say at least 50% of those are actually very serious impending disaster type check engine lights. No, none of us are carrying around a tester. We don't know. But they're still driving around with that light on. And then 10, here's the really, this is just creepy. 50% of those, it's been on for three months. Another 10%, it's two or one or two months. So it's really close to the three. The thing is, you don't know what it is. You know you've got a problem, but you're kind of ignoring it. Now, part of that is perception, and we, we look at it, and none of, I mean, very few of us are really mechanics. Now, every guy, I love this about us men, you know, every one of us kind of considers us a little bit of a mechanic. You know, you see some car broken down, hey, what's going on there? Have you checked the oil? You know, I mean, it's kind of like, yeah, okay, I'm not a moron, I've checked the oil. But, but you know, you, you, you have that, everybody kind of has an idea about it, but when it gets down to it, you've got that light on, and you're kind of ignoring it, and what we do a lot of times is, we have this sense that, well, the car's running okay, I mean, it feels fine. But the light's on. But it feels fine. But the light's on. You know there's a problem. You don't know what it is. But things seem to be running okay. There's another reason people give for not getting that checked out and finding out what the light is on for. Oh, let me show you a picture of the light. Just so you, that's what mine look like. It's got that little engine, comes on, pops on. I've had some people ask me, you know, friends of mine, I'm not going to say what gender, but they'll say, why does my dash have a picture of an engine on it? Okay, that's a problem, <laughs> you know, it's a problem. Now, my truck actually has another light that'll flash, it, which is really funny because they know who, how we are, and it'll say, check gauges. <laughs> so if, if my temp's getting high or something like that, it'll actually flash and say, check gauges. So as if, as if I wasn't already looking, I'm going to see that light. But anyway, a large percentage of people say the reason they ignore the check engine light is money because it's expensive sometimes. It's expensive to take care of these car things. But another part of that is the fear because you never know how much it's going to cost. And most of us have had this experience where you go into the mechanic and you feel totally helpless 
because they know you don't know. They could tell you anything, and you'd be like, oh, okay, and they'll say, yeah, and it's going to be, you know, $600, and you're like, really, $600? Yeah, it could be worse. Okay, I guess it's okay, $600. And then, then they come back and they say, well, that didn't fix it. It's going to be now this. And I'm like, well, I just paid. It gets scary. And so because of that, we hesitate to take care of the problem we know is there. <laughs> Another problem we have with it is time. It takes time to get your car fixed, right? It's a pain in the neck and it takes time. And you think, oh, I've got to find somebody to give me a ride. And then I've got to get back to work and then... If it gets ready, I mean, it's I'm, all this downtime, and we don't always have an extra vehicle, and it's, you don't want to inconvenience anybody else, and it's just, it can be tough, and, and I already mentioned the inconvenience, and oh, it's just a pain in the neck, but the light is on. You've got a problem, but you're not taking care of it. <laughs> Another thing people do, is they, or they don't want to do, is they don't want to change their lifestyle, because sometimes that check engine light means you're going to have to make a radical change in what you do. It might be like me, I'm, I'm at, this is the first time in my life, well, my adult life, that I haven't had either a truck or a Jeep to rely on. It's really a weird feeling. I don't feel like I'm all fully a man. I mean, I can't. There's, even this weekend, I mean, yesterday, Nicole and I are looking at different things, and we're thinking, oh, yeah, we can go, oh, no, we can't go get that. Or I wanted to pull the carpet out and put laminate in. Well, what am I going to do with my carpet? got to walk down the street with a carpet roll on my shoulder. and It's just a weird thing. Here's the sad thing about life is you've got the check engine light. You've got all these reasons in your mind floating around. And if any one of them, if you really pulled them down and said, is this really a good reason? You'd say, no, it's not. But you don't do that. Instead, you let them float around in your mind because you don't want to change. People tell us that change usually happens when the situation you're in gets so uncomfortable that it outweighs the discomfort of the change. It's like I'm willing to change. It's tough because you just ignore the light. Well, I would submit to you there's another light that comes on in people's lives. And I call it the um, check soul light. You ever seen that light? This is one of those things it's easier to see in other people sometimes. You know, it's as if they're walking around and this check soul light's coming on. And, and, and you want to talk to them about it and they can't even see it. And even if you did tell them, they'd say, no, I'm fine. I'm running fine. Everything's running fine. But they don't want to admit, admit to the fact that the check soul light is on. And it's indicating there's a severe problem. And it's been on for months, but they don't want to take care of it. For some of them, they think it's going to take either some kind of inconvenience, whether it's money or time, but something's going to have to happen and they're going to have to change their lifestyle and they're not willing to do that. So instead, they just ignore it. And sometimes the consequences don't happen soon. I mean, really, I know people, I've got a friend, he's got a piece of black electrical tape on his dash. I remember riding with him, like, what's that tape doing on your dash? He goes, oh, that covers the check engine light. <laughs> what? He's like, yeah, because it covers it, so it's, you know, it's, it's black on there, and I don't have to see it. I'm like, well, at night, does it kind of glow around the black tape? He goes, yeah, a little bit, but you get used to that. <laughs> people do that with their lives. All the time. Got that little piece of black tape over whatever it is that's blinking and saying, you got a problem, you got a problem, you got a problem. See, the thing is, we all have that check engine light and it goes, or check soul light, and it goes on from time to time and we don't fix it. In this case, it's big. 
The consequences are way bigger than breaking down on the freeway or getting stranded somewhere or not having an extra vehicle or the inconvenience of being, not being able to haul carpet. I mean, this is your eternity at stake. This is real. This is real. These are the stakes that are higher than anything else. There's nothing more important than this. How you respond to Jesus Christ and his message determines everything. Nothing compares to this. People have defined insanity as doing the same thing time after time and expecting a different result. And we laugh at people that do that. Of course, we never do that. But I would submit to you that even greater insanity is not preparing for something that you know is inevitable. But we all do it. We wander around as if it's not going to happen, but it is. It is going to happen. People say there's two things in life that are inevitable. You know what those are, right? Death and taxes. I would add one more to them. And it's maybe, a, maybe it's ancillary to the death part, but here it is. You're going to see Jesus. Everybody's going to see him. Whether you see him you know, in the rapture, in the air, or you see him through death. But we're going to see him. Everybody's going to see him. That's inevitable. And how you prepare for that determines everything. How you prepare for that is what's most important. Paul said it this way, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. Some of that could be translated, saints could be translated holy ones or loved ones or godly ones or faithful servants. Paul said to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Paul also said, you know, that we would be caught up to meet him in the air. I remember hearing my dad used to, he had a lot of cool sayings. My dad would say something like, well, I'll see you here, there, or in the air. I remember as a kid thinking, what is he talking about? <laughs> like, is he going to jump? Is he going to jump off the roof? Or I, I didn't know if that was because he worked with planes in the Navy. I, I really, as a little kid, I had no idea. Was, I'm very literal. Here, there, or in the air. But that's inevitable. It's a light blinking on somebody's head. It's a check soul light that they would like to ignore, but they can't because it's real and it's happening no matter what, no matter what they do. But what, it is, what happens is, you know, there's predictions of Christ coming back. And some of us have grown up in church where we've heard it a lot. I know my mom, she grew up in the forties and she talks about how, you know, it was a very real threat as she was a little girl because she was born in 41 that she remembers really young, you know, we were still at war with Japan and they would say, you know, they'd close all the, they would have blackout drills and all the school rooms, they'd black it out. And, you know, that was it. It was the end of the world. And even recently, and I, I know it's close. I mean, it's closer today than it's ever been. I feel that sense of urgency. But it's easy to be lulled into a feeling of safety and complacency, just like we do with that check engine light. Like, it's going to be okay. It's running fine. I made it here. I got here Okay. But you don't know. You don't know when it's going to happen. Kind of reminds me of in Second Peter, it says, most importantly, I want to remind you that in the last days, scoffers will come mocking the truth and following their own desires. They will say, what happened to the promise that Jesus is coming again? From before the times of our ancestors, everything has remained the same since the world was first created. Does that sound familiar? It's funny, isn't it? I mean, this is 2,000 years ago, and they were saying the same thing makes it easy to, to ignore that check soul light because people don't have that sense of urgency that he is coming back or that sense of urgency that you have to prepare for that inevitable end that comes for all of us. Peter goes on and he says, 
The Lord isn't really being slow about his promise, as some people think. No, he is being patient for your sake. He does not want anyone to be destroyed, but wants everyone to repent. But the day of the Lord will come as unexpectedly as a thief in the night. Then the heavens will pass away with a terrible noise and the very elements themselves will disappear in fire and the earth and everything on it will be found to deserve judgment. Kind of scary, isn't it? But that's the reality. That's the reality we try to ignore all the time. That's the reality we, use. we put that little piece of black electrical tape over because we don't want to be bothered with that. We don't want to think about it. And even though at night there might be a little red glow around that tape, it's easy to ignore it. We try to act like it's not real. You know what else that little portion of scripture reminds me of? Especially this verse right here. Because he says, God is being patient for your sake. He does not want anyone to be destroyed, but he wants everyone to repent. You know what that is? That's his heart. That's the heart that we talked about a few weeks ago. That's the heart of God. He loves you so much. That's why he puts that check soul light there. The automakers don't put that there to bother you. They put it there to warn you. Hey, there's an end coming for this vehicle. And if you don't get it fixed, you're going to be really sorry. And God does the same thing for us. And he tells us, hey, there's a check engine or check soul light on you. And things aren't going right. And things should be changed and fixed and repaired. And I'm the one to do it. That's his heart. His heart is to save every one of us and he wants to reach out and he wants us to be better off and he wants us to be happy and he wants to love you and he wants you to find forgiveness in him. That's what he wants. That's what he wants. He's got a plan for that too. He has got a plan for you to help that change happen. He's got a plan to see that change happen. He's got a plan to communicate that change. I've said it a million times. I think the plan would have been better if he'd have done it for each and every one of us. I have talked to people and they said, all right, all right. I'll believe you if, if God shows up right here, right now. <laughs> and I just look at him and he's not going to do that. He's not, a, he's not your puppet. He doesn't put on shows. That wasn't his plan. His plan, I'll get to his plan in a second. Let's look at what he says here. This is in Romans 10. If you openly declare that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You will be saved. We, we throw that term around saved. This is where it comes from right out of scripture, right there. You will be saved for it is by believing in your heart that you are made right with God. And it is by openly declaring your faith that you are saved. But we have a And as the scripture tell us, anyone who trusts in him will never be disgraced. Jew and Gentile are the same in this respect. They have the same Lord who gives generously to all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But we got a problem. Anybody see Apollo 13, the movie? Remember? If those of you don't never saw the movie, it was, it was a you know it was Apollo thirteen it was a moonshot. They're on their way to the moon. They're in space, and things start breaking down. And the guy, the guy calmly says, uh, "Houston, uh, we have a problem." Like, that would not be me. I'd be like, "Hey, something's breaking. Something's going wrong. Check engine lights on. 
Check soul light is on. Instead, he's like calm, like, um, Houston, <laughs> like, do you not get this? It's the same thing. It's the same thing with everybody you know who doesn't know Christ. They have a way bigger problem than the Apollo 11 crew. Way bigger. They have an eternal problem. Eternal. And where is God's plan? What, what's he going to do about it? He, he laid it out there. You've got to believe. You've got to trust him. You've got to confess the Lord. You, he laid it all out, but, but where, how does it happen? What's his plan? Here's his plan. What Paul does here is, well, let's read. I'll, I'll talk about it in a second. But how can they call on him, uh, to him, unless they believe in him? And how can they believe in him if they have never heard about him? And how can they hear about him unless someone tells them? And how will anyone go and tell them without being sent? That is why the scriptures say, how beautiful are the feet of the messengers who bring good news. So faith comes from hearing, that is, hearing the good news about Christ. What Paul does here is he kind of reverses the process. He, he lists how, what's going to happen, but he puts the goal first. The goal first is that they would call on him and come to faith, but then he reverses it. So what I want to do this morning with you is show you God's plan and how you fit into it, but I'm going to put it back into the order which kind of goes in, in the order of how it would actually happen. So here's how it goes in the order. He starts off with the beautiful sent ones. And how will anyone go and tell them without being sent? That is why the scriptures say, how beautiful are the feet of the messengers who bring good news. What Paul's doing here is he's quoting Isaiah 52, which is almost a direct quotation right out of Isaiah. And what he's saying is that the beautiful feet are those representatives who go and do the telling. Now, in Paul's day and age, there was no cell phone or text message or email or Skype or anything like that. Do you know how they sent messages? In person, by runners. They would run or ride a horse or something and get a message from one place to another. It's amazing any communication really happened, if you think about it. I mean, you've got to get there. Then you've got to clearly... Anybody played telephone before? Remember that old game? You'd start at one line and tell a phrase, and then it'd work its way down, and by the end, it's, you know, it bears any, very little resemblance to the original phrase. But when somebody came with good news... It was spread everywhere, and they spread it by word of mouth. It just happened. And I I tell you that on purpose because that's the imagery that Paul is using here because that is the way good news was spread. That's how it happened all the time. And he said it was beautiful. The feet of them were considered beautiful because it was the feet of them that took that message of good news to people. I want to remind you of the Great Commission. It says, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And teach these new disciples to obey the commands I've given you. And be sure of this, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Sometimes in our English translations, we lose a little bit of the meaning. When it says go, it's actually assumed that you're already going. When Jesus said that to the disciples, it was right before he ascended into heaven. He had just shown them his scars and and, and he had told them all this. And then he gets ready to go to heaven and he says, he doesn't say go, he says As you're going, do this. As you're going. As you're going. Do you realize it's your feet that are beautiful? You're the beautiful messengers. Now, I know we've got missionaries here and they're messengers also, but you're the messengers to your mission field. They're missionaries. I mean, I keep pointing up there because I'm thinking of Mark and Liddy, and they are messengers right now in France and then eventually in Africa again. 
But your messages, your messengers to where you are, your beautiful messengers there. That's the difference. You're the beautiful messenger as you're going everywhere you go. Then the next thing he does, and, and he says, preach, preacher. You guys are welcome to say that anytime if you want. Well, I'm preaching. I'm just, uh, he says, how can they hear about him unless someone tells them? That phrase is actually proclaims it to them, which is where we get the word preach. It's a telling. I emphasize that because what he had in mind was preach and tell, not read. There's nothing wrong with the printed word. I'm just saying that the what he was, the imagery he was using was a preacher. Preach it. Tell them. Now, I know when I even say that to you, some of you probably think, preach? Uh, I'm not a preacher. And I know that even that term preacher, there's some negative connotations in our world today that kind of go along with that. The fact is, we're all preaching something. We preach, we preach no matter what we do, we're preaching. You, you're, some of you are preaching Ford by what you drive and how you drive it and how you wear it and how you rep it on your clothes or whatever. We're all preaching. We preach all the time. You're preaching your value system by what you do and you're preaching how you dress. Some people preach about politics or gossip or news of the day or fashion or business or tech or sports or other diversions, but we all preach. My challenge to you is to preach Jesus, to sprinkle Jesus into those conversations. I'm not talking about being preachy. I'm talking about preaching Jesus. Now, with that, it reminds me of this quote that's attributed to St. Francis of Assisi. Preach Christ always. Use words if you must. I love that quote. You know what I love about it is because it emphasizes the fact that our actions have to back up our words. Truth. Absolute truth. The problem with this quote is Francis of Assisi probably didn't say it for a few reasons. First of all, he was a very, very famous preacher. And he had a lot, of, uh, a lot of people who chronicled his life, and there's no mention of this quote anywhere in, in the early histories of him at all. And if, if he said something this catchy, it would have been written down. But the second reason it couldn't have been him is he preached as much as he lived it. He was a very unique preacher for his time. He actually lived around the 1200s. What's famous about him is there's a lot of stories about how he preached and some of the things he did. Because it talks about how <clears throat> he was known for actually using some of the techniques of the troubadours. You know what a troubadour is? That's, that's like the guy who would walk around and sing with a, like a minstrel. He would preach that way. It said that he would preach outdoors sometimes five times a day at five different churches. It said that when he would preach outdoors, he would find, we would call it a soapbox, but he would find a hay bale to stand on, or he would stand in a window and preach to crowds. It said that he would preach to all manner of people, including the serfs, including the landowners, including the business owners. That wasn't common in the day. Usually people stayed in their class, but he violated that and preached to everybody. So as great as this quote is, and it serves a great purpose, he probably didn't say it. Because what he did is he actually sent out disciples of his to do what? Preach. He was a preacher. The problem is a lot of times people use that quote to make Christians be quiet. And what they want us to do is, don't tell me, show me. And there's a lot of wisdom in that. And if you're not showing, please don't preach. You, you hear me? But don't, don't stop preaching. Don't let people shut you up. You need to preach it. And, and when I say preach, I know what you're thinking. I'm not talking about you preach. I'm talking about you tell. Tell the story. 
Tell the good news. Tell what God has done for you. Tell what he did. Tell all that he did and tell it in a great way. In fact, we'll get to that right now. Can you hear me now? Can you? I hate when I, hate when I lose a call and I say that. Can't even stop myself from saying that. I hate that. Com- remember that commercial that was on all the time? Can you hear me now? Can you hear me? And then every time I start to drop a call, I'm like, can you hear me? Uh, hello? Here's my point. It says here, how can they hear about him unless someone tells them? We already talked about the telling, but let's talk about the hearing. How many times, this happened to me quite a few times this last week, where my wife told me something and I didn't hear it. Do you, you understand? Do I, anybody help me here on this? Because I'm not a bad person. <laughs> but how many times, how do you, how, this is so true. You can tell someone any manner of things. And you can tell them every detail about the gospel. But if you don't tell them in a way that they will hear it, that they will receive it, you might as well have not said a thing. And that's different for everybody. Some people are really verbal and really maybe intellectual or maybe philosophical. Some people are more emotional. There are different ways to preach the gospel. And the key is you to, for you to preach it in a way that they will actually hear it that it will sink in and they will absorb what you're really saying. Your message needs to match your lifestyle. Have you ever heard this? What you're saying or what you do screams so loud I can't hear a word you're saying. Yeah. I think sometimes our problem is that we're answering questions that people aren't even asking. And then there's times where society throws up all of these distractions that keep us from talking about Jesus And it's not like these other things aren't important. They're important, but it's easy to get sidetracked on them and get off of the real thing, and that is Jesus. I found often that there's people who might have issues with Christianity or different parts of Christianity, but when they find out who Jesus is, all those other things start to make more sense. I was talking with a guy at Ironman, actually, Tuesday night, the men's men's, uh, life group, second and fourth Tuesdays. He said, when I became a Christian, I had all these questions before, and when I became a Christian, Things just started to click, and I got it. There's times where we get super distracted. Here's the other thing. People deserve to hear it. You've heard it a lot. This church, any church, we're not aquariums just to take care of fish because most fish aren't going to jump into an aquarium. We're supposed to be fishers of men, which involves telling and preaching, and then them come in that way. Use a net. This next part about it is the believing part. They, how can they call on him to save unless they believe? Believing is a huge part of them coming to Christ. And the big important thing is what they believe in. In church, we get so used to doing the things we do that sometimes that ends up being more or the focus rather than believing in Jesus. People don't really have issues with Jesus. They have issues with with his followers, but Jesus they like. And we need to make sure we line up more and more with him and keep it to him. For it's by grace you've been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves, it's a gift of God. That's the truth about Jesus. Then the next part about it is they will then call on him. That's what you want them to do. You want them to call out to him. But how can they call on him to save them unless they believe in him? For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. 
You notice there that faith and action are connected. It's kind of a Western thing that we separate belief from what we do. We live these compartmentalized lives where we have our church life in person, and then we have the person we are at home, and maybe the person we are at work, and maybe the person we are in our leisure, and maybe the person we are with this one group of friends, and then the person we are with this other group of friends. That's not really scriptural. The idea is that all these would be one person and that everything you believe would show in the way you act and talk and your attitudes. So it's never awkward when those two worlds collide at the mall or someplace else in public like, oh, who's this? Oh, who's this? uh, Because you're one person. Because your faith and your actions are all connected. And what happens when people believe that they start to live it out and then their actions line up and change? Faith is active. It's a verb. Can I have the worship team come back up and help us focus a little bit? There was a tightrope walker, really famous French guy. His name was Blondine. And he stretched a rope across the uh, Niagara Falls. Has anybody ever seen pictures of this? It is an amazing thing to see. Anybody been to Niagara Falls? I've never even been there. I'd like to go. But the story goes that, you know, he was a performer, and the way a performer like that makes money is they got to get the crowd there. And so people were coming, you know, from both Canada and the United States, and he would go across, and he started to do these incredible antics, and they would advertise these antics, and the crowd just grew and grew and grew. I mean, he did amazing things. He would go across, he would go across with a wheelbarrow, he went across with a wheelbarrow full of stuff, he went across on a bike. He actually went across one time with a stove cook set, and then from a boat below, he made, well, he made an omelet and then lowered it down to the boat below so they could enjoy the omelet. Amazing, isn't it? So then he went to the other side to the crowd and he says, how many of you believe that I can go across with somebody on my back? And the whole crowd said, we believe, we believe. And he says, who will be the one to ride on my back? You saw the separation between belief and action. How many of you believe that people need to hear the gospel? Do you really believe it? How many of you are going to preach it? Because God's plan, his plan was for us to be his voice. We're his voice. It's his heart that motivates us. And we become his hands. We talked about this last week and we serve. But it's also his plan for us to be his voice. Now, I know some of us feel the pressure sometimes. I mean, I can't tell you how frustrating it is. I mean, I've talked to some people for years, and they still haven't committed to Christ, but they're still talking, and I'm happy for that. And I feel like, God, I can't, I've actually said this to him, God, I can't convince them. And I've heard him say, yeah, that's not your job. That's my job. It's your job to tell them. It's your job to be faithful and tell them then he does the convincing. He's the one who saves them in the first place. It's his Holy Spirit who convinces them. Our job isn't to win them. It's our job is to tell them. Somebody pointed out to me one time, it's really a, a great point, but the, you know that parable of the sower Jesus told where 
the farmer just goes and spreads seed all over the place. And that's kind of how they would do it back there. They would just cast it and just, it would fly everywhere. As a parable goes that some fell on the path and birds just came quickly and ate it up. And Jesus later said it was the enemies stealing the message out of their hearts. Then he said some fell on rocky soil and because the soil was shallow and the rocks would warm it up, the plant flourished really quickly, but because it didn't have any root, it withered and died. Then he said some of it fell among weeds and the weeds choked the message out, doubts and hard times. And some fell on fertile soil. Now we don't, we don't farm like that today. We're really careful about where we put that seed. But one thing I like about that parable that I want to impart to you today is we should be more like that farmer. Because there's times where I hesitate to tell somebody and I think, oh, they're not going to listen. I make a judgment based on maybe what they're wearing or their attitude or what they've said to me. And I think, oh, this person's not right. I'm not going to say anything to them. But we're called to tell. Maybe for you, it's, it's the uh, fear of a broken relationship. Maybe somebody in your family and you, you don't want them to write you off or not ever invite you to dinner again or something. But I want to encourage you to tell them. They need to hear what you have. They need it. They need it more now than ever. I really do believe time is short. That check soul light that's flashing on their head is a sign that inevitable is coming. It's coming, and it's our job to tell. Just shut your eyes with me for just a moment. Maybe you've been sitting here today and you've thought, I never really thought it was my job to tell. I figured it was the pastors or maybe someone who was gifted in evangelism or something like that. Maybe you've thought that. I hope now you realize it's, that's not true. It's your job to tell. Maybe you felt that you were limited or because you didn't know all the answers or you weren't you know, educated or maybe you didn't know enough of the Bible or maybe you felt like you were prevented from telling because something in your past disqualified you from being the right person to tell. I want you to know that God doesn't limit us that way. In fact, he says that if you open your mouth that he will speak through you. Besides, it'll be way more authentic coming from you in your own voice than it would be in someone super educated probably anyway. Maybe you've just been timid or afraid and maybe you feel like it's not my personality to tell. That's okay too because God uses every one of us in the personality he gave us. And maybe if you're that timid person that it's not going to be your job to stand up and tell the masses like like some people do. But instead, it's going to be a one-on-one relationship in which you're really comfortable because you have that relationship already. Here's the thing. Do you believe, though? Do you really believe that people need to know? And if you do, then you need to jump on his back and you need to tell. Let's do this. If you would stand with me for just a moment. I want to pray for you that God would give you the boldness and the willingness to tell. With your eyes closed for a second, let me just ask you that question. How many of you feel like you need to tell, but it's been difficult? Just for any of those reasons I mentioned. Lots of hands. You're in good company. You're in really good company. Let me ask a more eternal and even more important question. Is it possible? Is there anyone here, maybe you've never 
committed to Christ before. Maybe you've walked away and you've walked in. And maybe as we've been talking, you've been feeling kind of maybe an urgency in your, in your spirit inside or maybe, a hes- maybe something that you feel like, I need to respond to this somehow. I need, I need a relationship with God and I need to start it today. Anybody feeling that at all? Would you raise your hand so we could pray with you today? going to hesitate for just a moment. Anybody at all? All right. We're going to close the service this way today where I'm going to pray for all of us. Every one of us who raised our hands that said we've, we realized that we need to have more of that urgency to tell and be obedient to be his voice. And then as we dismiss today, uh, Pastor Nick and the team are going to play some worship And then I want to invite pastors, wives, board, wives, prayer team. We'll be down here to pray with people. Father, thank you so much. God, thank you for the person who who was your voice.